I'm James. Today we're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Thanks. Thank you, James. All right. Well, it is a great passage that we are going to get into this morning. Uh, but before we do, let me just tell you a little bit of, of a story from my past. So uh, when my brother and I were kids growing up, uh, so many of the games that we played were basically just us reworking real sports and then finding ways to play like a modified version of them inside. So there were the basics, like... Nerf basketball, you know, lots of fun. But over time, we had to get more and more creative because, you know, as kids, you like to play lots of different games. Uh, so one of our favorite games was to uh, set up uh, mattresses so that we could be pro wrestlers and perform all sorts of moves on each other. That almost resulted in the destruction of a fish tank. Uh, then we would do games uh, like set up obstacle courses inside. That almost destroyed several pieces of furniture. Uh, but my favorite game, which absolutely resulted in the destruction of my grandmother's lamp, uh, was Nerf hockey. All right? So what we would do is my, my brother had got an ice hockey stick from somewhere, I don't know where, he, you know, whatever the equivalent of uh, eBay was back in the day. Uh, he got this hockey stick, and what we would do is we'd rearrange the couches inside, we'd get the Nerf basketball, and if you could shoot and hit the base of the couch, you'd get one point. But if you shot and you hit the, the pillows on the upper level of the couch, that was worth two points. And then Bob's your uncle, that's hours and hours of fun and the destruction of family heirlooms. But here's the thing. Even though we would take pieces from other sports and things like that uh, and, and recreate these games, they weren't the actual sports themselves. The equipment might overlap. Some of the basic concepts might overlap. But there was a difference between the real sport and this thing that we sort of created and did in our own strength. And the reason that I'm bringing that up today is because I think that we need to be really, really clear about what Christianity is actually all about. I think one of the biggest dangers for Christians in the world today is to get confused between the real sport and a sport that can kind of use some of the same equipment, where there can be some overlap, but it's not actually the same thing. And to put a really sharp label on it, what I want to say to us this morning is that Christianity is not a culture war. Now, a culture war is a term you might have heard, you might not have, but let me just explain it really, really simply. It is a conflict between two different groups in a society 
as they battle one another for the dominance of their values, beliefs, and practices. The term that you'll see uh, get thrown around in the media sometimes when you've got polarization between different groups in a society over certain issues. And in places like in Australia and America and the UK and Europe, we've seen over the last decade these so-called culture wars get to a really intense level because it doesn't need, you, know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to see that our culture and society has gotten more and more polarized in all sorts of different ways. Some of the issues uh, that people fight culture wars over are things like abortion, homosexuality, transgender rights, pornography, multiculturalism, racism, environmental issues, religious freedom, and other cultural conflicts based on values, morality, and lifestyle. Now, let me say really, really clearly, the Bible absolutely has things to say about each of these issues. And these issues should absolutely be things that Christians think hard about and which Christians can you know, talk about in the public sphere in different ways. I'm not saying that the church and Christians shouldn't have informed discussion about this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in public debate about this. But what I am saying is that we need to be really clear that Christianity does not equal a culture war. Culture war, the fight for the dominance of values, beliefs, that sort of idea, that's not what Christianity is about. As Christians, we're not to be fighting the culture war. Now, as Christians, we might be involved in society. We might be involved in public debate. We might have thoughts. We have the scripture, which gives us God's good order for this world. And that's something that we can generously seek to share with people and to proclaim the virtues of God's goodness and the way that he has designed the world. But that's different from being involved in a culture war where we're fighting against other groups in society for the dominance of our beliefs and values. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, it's because I think that in this passage today, we see really clearly that a culture war, a war against other groups in society, is not the war that we're meant to be involved in as Christians. There is a fight that we're to be involved in. There is a spiritual war that we as Christians are to be battling in. But if we confuse who our enemy is and who our enemies are, then we take the actual sport, we replace it with a made-up version of our own, and we label that as the real deal. And that's a mistake that we can't afford to make. So, to help us get into this passage, to give some background of what's happened previously in Ephesians, you never just want to jump into a text with no context whatsoever. Uh, I've got a quote here, a little bit long, from uh, a really great uh, Bible uh, preacher by the name of John Stott. And he's just going to give us a little bit of background before we jump straight into this passage. So he says that so far, as we get to chapter 6 here in Paul's letter, he's exhorted that Christians must live a life that is worthy of their calling and fitting to their status as God's new and reconciled society. They must demonstrate their unity in, the Christian, fellowship, in Christian fellowship while at the same time rejoicing in the diversity of their gifts and so of their ministries. They must put away all the uncleanness of their pre-conversion behavior and live a life of true righteousness and holiness. And they must learn to submit to one another in every kind of domestic relationship and so promote harmony in their homes. 
unity, diversity, purity, and harmony. These, the Apostle has stressed as major characteristics of the new life of the new society in Christ. It has got, and it has seemed a beautiful ideal, and obviously a desirable goal, and not so difficult to attain. But now, as we get to chapter 6, verse 10, Paul brings us down to earth and the realities harsher than dreams. He reminds us of the opposition. So Paul has painted a picture so far in Ephesians of what it looks like to live as God's people, and it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of a community of people following Jesus, living up to the calling that they have been given. But as much as he wants them to see that that's a possibility for them if they live in accordance with the Spirit, he also wants them to be aware that there is an opposition who will stand against them. And that's what he says here at the start of the passage. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against human enemies, political opposition, some form of you know, group hostile towards Christians? No. So you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, when we Christians today talk about the devil, we can get a little bit awkward. Because here's the thing. Jesus is somebody who, for lots of Christians, if they've sort of looked into the origins of faith and that sort of stuff, we know is a historical figure that was recorded about in all sorts of different ways. And even though he did miraculous things, and most miraculously he died and rose again, we like to point to all the different witnesses and the people that saw him, and we like to ground him really strongly in history. There's this natural element to Jesus, even as he's doing supernatural things. But then when it comes to the idea of Satan, or the devil battling and fighting a spiritual war against Christians, that starts to sound like something out of a fantasy novel. It sounds like something that's a little weird and strange. But we have to understand that the Bible, the New Testament, is full of references. Almost every New Testament author references the devil. Okay? We've got Jesus himself in the Gospels where it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what follows after this is a conversation where Jesus is actively talking to and being tempted by Satan, a person, a real being. In James 4, 7, it says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Peter writes, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. John writes, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then Paul again in 2 Corinthians 12, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Again and again and again, the New Testament authors want to frame our walk as Christians and our fight as Christians as being about resisting the devil, Satan. Okay? It's not this weird fringe idea that just exists in the, the corners of Christianity somewhere. It's right there at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to resist the devil, to recognize the reality of him and stand firm. Like the usual suspect said, the greatest, devil, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And if we Christians fall into that trap, we weaken ourselves and we miss the real battle that we're to be involved in. So it says back in our passage here in Ephesians, 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against flesh and blood. Let me say it one more time. It's not against humans, people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. If as a Christian today, you think that our biggest enemies are progressives, or communists, or Marxists, or conservatives, or the Greens, or fill in the blank, the LGBTQI community, trans people, whatever human group you want to look at and say, that's the big threat, that's not our real enemy. Our enemy are the rulers, authorities, powers, and dark spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's who we need to recognize is our enemy. In fact, in the own, and, and this is super interesting, in the one instance in the New Testament where people are called enemies, do you know what Scripture exhorts us to do? It says in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you want to be involved in a culture war as a Christian, then go feed your enemy. Go give them something to drink. That is the only culture war that we're called to be in against humans. Now, can dark spiritual forces be at work through people? Sure, absolutely. But there is still a big difference between recognizing that behind a person stands a spiritual opposition and seeing that person themselves as their enemy rather than someone that we're called to feed and give a drink to and pray for and love them and tell them the good news of Jesus in the hope they might come to repentance as well. It doesn't mean we don't say they're wrong. It doesn't mean we don't speak against what they're saying, but we don't treat them like our enemy. We don't fall into the trap of taking this sort of made-up sport and thinking that's the real deal. And this is the other key thing. Even in this spiritual warfare that we're called to, we need to recognize that it is Jesus who wins the battle, not us. 1 John 3, 8, second half of that verse I read before. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He didn't show up so that we could destroy the devil's work. He showed up, and through his death and resurrection, he destroys the devil's work. When he's cast into the pit of fire at the end, it's going to be Jesus who's doing it, not us. Colossians 2, Paul again. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Who defeats the powers and authorities? It's Jesus through his death and resurrection. The reason that I'm speaking this this morning, in part, is because I see more and more in culture wars attempts made to use the Bible, to use God's word to justify the fight that's happening in our public and political spheres. I see political leaders who aren't pastors, who aren't theologians, using the Bible, oftentimes really poorly, 
in order to try and justify their political fight. Now, again, the Bible absolutely has things to say to politics. It absolutely has things to say about all these topics that culture wars get gets fought over. I'm not against bringing scripture into the public domain, but we've got to be really careful again to make sure we're not confusing public discussion about what's happening in society with a culture war where we're fighting to dominate and treating it as though this is what we've been called to do as Christians. That's the main game because that's not the fight that we're called to. The fight that we're called to is one against the spiritual forces that would seek to tear us down and take us away from Christ. And so Paul is concerned to make sure that we stand firm. He says in 6.13, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Do you notice this? The purpose of Christian spiritual warfare, the purpose of putting on the armor of God that we're going to look at in just a moment, is not to win the fight. Do you notice that? It didn't say put on the full armor of God so you can go forth and claim the victory over Satan. It is put on the armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you can stand your ground. He starts off in verse 10 by saying, be strong in the Lord, in the Lord's mighty power. Our job, our fight is to stand firm until Jesus comes because he's the one who's going to triumph over every evil in this world. This is not a victory that we win. This is a victory that we stand firm in as our Lord and Master fights the great fight that he's already won on the cross in which the full victory we're going to see when he returns into this world. So until then, we put on the armor of God to stand firm in this world. Not seeking to win a cultural war out there, but rather seeking to win a battle here in our hearts as we fight against our real enemy, the devil. So I'll read through the tools that God gives to us, and then we'll break them down one by one. He says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's look at each in turn. First up, we've got the belt of truth. Okay, This is closer to like a WWE championship belt than a, a ladies' fashion belt, just so we're clear. Okay, It's a big, thick leather belt that was designed to, to keep your core strong and, and, and girded well. Okay, that, That's what we're talking about here. And when we talk about the belt of truth, we're talking about truth in two different aspects. One is the truth of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, that he is the Lord of all who came into this world, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who defeated death in order that we might live in him. And from that truth, we know all the rest of scripture and everything else that God has revealed to us is true. There's the big capital T truth of Jesus and everything that is true and real in this world. There is objective reality that God has created, and in knowing that truth, it is like a belt that strengthens our core. But there's also the truth of what it means to be faithful people with integrity in this world. That we don't just know the truth, but we live truth. That we are integrous in our human relationships. That we are faithful to keep our word. That we live in accordance 
with the truth as Jesus has revealed it to us. And as we do that, then it means that as we operate in a, in a world where there are spiritual forces and dark powers of the heavenly realms that seek to deceive and accuse us, as we're going to see a little bit more in just a second, as we walk in integrity, it's so much harder for them to accuse us to our own hearts, but also to stir up opposition and accuse us in the public and relational spheres in which we exist. So belt on the truth, the belt of truth. Next up, we have the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, the breastplate of righteousness would cover your back and your front. It was the next part of armor that you would put on. And again, there's two senses when we talk about the righteousness that we have in Christ, the armor of God that he's given us. The first one is the gift of righteousness that are given to all who believe in Jesus. Scripture tells us that when we believe in Jesus, we are justified. We are declared righteous. The righteousness that is rightfully Christ's, we get to share in. We're incorporated into him in the righteousness that he has, which means that as God looks upon us, even though we are sinful, even though we have messed up, even though we failed in all sorts of different ways, he does not look upon us and condemn us and see us as guilty, but rather he looks upon us and sees us in Christ and his righteousness now guards us as well. We are declared righteous in Christ. But then there's also this righteousness that again comes from walking in righteous ways. So in two separate passages in Ephesians here, Paul doesn't just talk about the righteousness that we're given, but also the righteousness that we live out. In 4.22 he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a true righteousness and holiness that we're meant to live in as we put on the new self in Christ. And then in Ephesians 5, For you were once darkness, but now you are in the light. Live as children of God, live, live, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Living out the reality of who we are as the children of light looks like goodness, righteousness, and truth. So when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, it's that knowledge and understanding that before God, in Christ, we are declared righteous, but also it's living out that righteousness in the good works that we do, in the right ways that we live, in the godly works that we display. That also is like a protection upon us that again stops us from being able to be accused against in our own hearts and by the dark forces around us. Next up, it says to have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And the, the Roman armor, the soldiers that they used to have back in the day, that's what Paul's basing all these different pieces of armor against. Okay, they would have these, these open-toed sandals. Okay? Probably not great for cold weather, but pretty good for a long march in general. Right? Okay, was, they were the Nikes of their day. Uh, Nikes are Greek gods. Roman. No, no, no. Anyway, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It is this willingness, a readiness, a preparedness to go forth and to proclaim the gospel of peace. That in Christ, it's possible to be reconciled with God. It's actually, it's kind of a weird one when you think about it. It doesn't immediately uh, strike you as a protective thing to have a willingness to go forth and preach the gospel. But the idea is that we are ready for the mission that God has given to us. There's that, there's that old saying, uh, it, what is it, the, the, the devil, uh, you know, the devil's playground is idleness or something like that. There's a mission that we're meant to be on. If we're focused, if we're on task, right, then 
we don't get distracted by the foolish things that the devil would want us to involve ourselves in. And there's lots of good things for us to enjoy in this world. But if we constantly have that readiness to proclaim the gospel, if we have that focus of what we're to be about as soldiers in the Lord's army, not again to fight a culture war, but rather to proclaim the gospel of peace to this world, it gives us a focus that serves as a protection for us in the spiritual battle that we're in. Verse 16, it says, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of evil. What are the flaming arrows of the evil one? They're the lies and accusations that he would throw against us. See, see, that's what the devil is. That's how he's described to us again and again and again. It says in John 8, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth. But there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, but he is a liar and the father of lies. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus tells us crystal clear who the devil is. He is a liar, a murderer. There is no truth in him. He was the one who deceived Adam and Eve in the beginning in order that sin might come into this world and we might be put in rebellion against God. That is what he does. He lies. And in Revelation 12, it calls him the accuser. It says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses him before our God day and night has been hurled down. It's a picture of what's going to happen at the end, but the key thing that I want you to get here is that he's called the accuser. The negative thoughts that say that you are no good before God to, to those who are believing in Jesus. Right, The fiery darts that he wants to throw against us are, God doesn't love you. Can you really trust God? Is God really good? That sin, that one that you haven't told anybody else about, that you don't want anyone else to know about, that's the difference, man. That's why he's not going to let you in. These lies that would hold us in shame and keep us separated from God and the good things that he has for us, these are the tools of our true enemy. And what is our defense against them specifically? It's the shield of faith. The shield of faith with which we believe and trust in God's promises and not Satan's lies. That's the shield of faith. So when the devil comes to me with his lies, you aren't good enough for God. No, no, no. My faith says that God promises me that I've been forgiven because of what Jesus has done. When Satan himself was tempted in the desert, it was his faith in God and God's ways that enabled him to stand firm against the devil's lies. It was Adam and Eve's mistake in the beginning. They didn't trust in God's word. They didn't believe what God had told them and instead they listened to a deceitful voice. And it's through faith in God, it's our trust in him, it's our belief in his word, the hope that he offers offers and the promises that he's made to us that is the shield of faith that we are to fight against those lies with. And then in verse 17, it says, take the helmet of salvation. What a great picture, right? I think most of us want to protect our head, okay, in all sorts of ways. We've got laws in place to protect, get cyclists just to put something on their head because we recognize you've got to protect the head, okay? It's where the thinking gets done. The helmet of salvation is the knowledge that we are saved, that we're right with God, that we are at peace with him. 
you can't get into my mind and into my thoughts, Satan, if I'm believing and trusting in the promise of salvation, that I have been saved, that I have been rescued, that I am not condemned. But no, I stand firm knowing that I'm safe in salvation. I can look upon what's happening out there in the battle knowing that I'm safe in salvation. And then lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The word there for sword, uh, it's, it's the a description of the, the Roman short sword. Okay, there was a couple of different Roman uh, weapons. It, it wasn't the long spear. It wasn't the long sword of a cavalryman. It was the short sword of a foot soldier. It was the sword that you use when you're in the thick of the battle. And the sword of the Spirit, the sword that God's Spirit gives to us to use, is the Word of God. It's God's message to us that we had to fight against the devil's schemes with. So when he comes to us and he tries to condemn us, we say, no, no, I've got Romans 8.1, thank you, Satan. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he comes at me and he says, you know, you have been separated from God, the sin that you have committed. Well, actually, in Romans 8, it says that nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We have the Word of God available to us as a tool to use in our fight that takes place in our minds and in our hearts against our one true enemy. And the way that we stand firm in God's mighty power is to use God's Word. And this is important, guys, because we, we talk a lot about reading God's Word. In, in a church like ours, you, you hear it a lot. It's valuable. We, we preach it on Sundays. We look at it at growth groups. We encourage you to read it during the week. But this is really important. You need to read God's word and recognize that this is your act of picking up the sword of the Spirit. Can you go to battle without a sword? Yeah, sure, you can do that. Is it a good idea? Absolutely not. When I pick up God's word in the morning and I read it, I'm sharpening it for the battle. It's not something that I just get you know, facts and figures from. It's not something that I get some historical understanding about the word from. It is a tool that God has given me in order to fight a spiritual battle. And I want to give you a real concrete example just in the last couple of weeks of how this has played out in my life so you can sort of see how this works. Over the last fortnight, I've had two really bad back issues. And then just yesterday, after we got done with the women's conference, I couldn't move my neck. Like, you can ask me, she was working it last night with her elbow. I, I could barely get here and there. And you know what? The, the battle that goes, that goes on in my mind and my heart in that moment is, this is not fair. I've been serving you, God. I think that I've been doing well. Are, are you punishing me? Is there, some, is there something that I've missed, God? What, what's going on here? And you know what I have to recognize them as? The lies of Satan. And you know how I do that? It's because I think, well, you know what? Actually, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, that Paul recognized that some of the pain that he experienced, a messenger from Satan, was a thorn in his flesh that God used. And even though he prayed for deliverance from it, God uses that for Paul's good. That it says in James 1, 2-4, to, to consider it pure joy, my brothers, to face trials of many kinds, for the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so you'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. 
And it says in Hebrews 12 that the Lord disciplines every son he receives. He scourges him not necessarily as an act of punishment or to penalize him for sin, but rather so that it might yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to him. In that moment when I was experiencing physical pain and my thoughts went to despair, where I find hope is in God's word. That's not a victory that I've won. It's just confessing the trust and the hope that I have in the promises of Christ and what he's given to me and having a right understanding so that that in that moment, the devil's lies can't drive me away from Christ, but rather they push me closer to him. That's what spiritual warfare looks like. That's what it looks like to stand firm. It is not a culture war. It's not, despite taking this human opposition out there and then seeking to defeat them in order to try and get some sort of victory or something like that, the victory has been won by Christ and we stand firm in it as we fight this spiritual battle in the mundane, ordinary challenges of everyday life in this world. That is the fight that as Christians we are to be involved in. And finally, Paul finishes with this exhortation to pray. I love this because he just gives up on the metaphor. Have you ever noticed that? You've got the armor of God. There's all these different bits. And then he gets to prayer and he's just like, you know what? I don't need a metaphor for prayer. Just do it, bro. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. He doesn't frame it in the metaphor of the armor of God, but don't miss it. It's still one of the tools that God has given us to wage this spiritual warfare. It's through prayer that God's heavenly power works in this world. God has chosen to work through our prayers and the exhortation that he has here for us directs it away just from me and my spiritual battle but to the battle for all the saints. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. It's not a spiritual battle that we are in just by ourselves but rather one that we are in together as God's people. Now, I'm not going to preach this the very last verse because I'm going to spend a lot more time talking about that same sort of idea next week. I'm going to look at Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and, and Paul's determination to preach the gospel. But I just hope that this morning you've had your, your mind reframed. That if, if you look out across the, the landscape of what's happening in the world and all the different issues that people are fighting over, that as Christians, you wouldn't get distracted from the reality of what our Christian life and our Christian walk is and the, the fight that we're meant to be involved in and confuse that with the culture war that rages around us. Again, we can have something to say to that. I'm not saying that there's no involvement whatsoever, but what I'm saying is if your energy and your fighting force has been going towards that and not this, then you're missing the main game. This is the fight that we have to first and foremost be concerned about. So, as Meg encouraged the kids earlier, take up your armor and put it on. Which armor has been lacking in your life? Which one do you need to go to in order to put on the new self that we are in Christ, to fight this battle well, to stand firm in God's mighty power, and to give him glory in all that we do? Let's pray together, church. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus and the victory that he has won. Thank you that Satan has been disarmed, that he has been cast down, and the Lord, you have won that battle for us. But Father, as he still remains powerful in this world now, 
May we put on the armor of God to stand firm. Thank you for these gifts that you have given us. Truth, righteousness, a readiness to proclaim the gospel, faith, salvation, your word, prayer. Thank you for these mighty tools that by the power of your spirit enable us to live faithfully for you in this world and for your glory. May we put it on well this week and may we never get distracted from the true fight that you call us to. And we thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name.